This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. Today's guest is Joe Lumen. Joe and I spoke back in March this year after arranging to chat in late January, early February, so this episode has been a long time coming. But before we get to the interview, I want to take a moment to acknowledge that I'm working on booking interviews with guests who can speak authoritatively about the defeat of Roe by the Supreme Court last week, and also speak to the role white evangelicalism has had in bringing this moment to pass. This is a deeply troubling ruling, which, as I wrote in my newsletter at the Post-Evangelical Post, immediately made the reproductive rights and overall health and safety of pregnant persons and potentially pregnant persons more dangerous. Clarence Thomas's opinion also signaled an intent to reconsider and potentially overturn other precedents that would affect access to contraception, marriage equality, and same-sex intimacy. The Supreme Court also delivered other conservative victories as well. Yesterday, they ruled in favor of an evangelical football coach employed by a public school system who led a post-game prayer at the center of a football field. And last week, they also struck down a ban on the use of public funds for the funding of religious schools in Maine. All of these decisions presuppose that Christianity, in general normative white Christianity, and in particular conservative evangelical Protestant or conservative Catholic Christianities, will be the primary benefactors. Each of these decisions are landmark victories from the vantage point of long-term white Christian nationalists and their allies. And why... While it is easy to get distracted in the never-ending games of what is a Christian nationalist or how do you define an evangelical, this isn't really the time or place for it. Language may fumble at portraying every single nuance of belief and practice, but let this be sufficient. The long-standing political and legislative groups and the united voting bloc that empowers, funds, and enables them have reached their plainly stated so-called pro-life goals. What comes next, no one knows. But we do know this, they will use their power. It does not matter how they gained it or whether the majority of Americans disagree with them. But as fellow irreverent media group podcaster Mason Menenga wrote on Twitter, white evangelicals won't stop until they oppress the entire world. In the meantime, though, I do hope you enjoy this conversation. You'll hear Joe and I talk about her experience growing up in Colombia, her experience within evangelical circles in America, and her work discussing decolonization online. In the months following our discussion, Joe became a target of many far-right figures such as Matt Walsh, who rallied their followers to harass her. The reason was ostensibly because of a tweet about abortion. Because of this tweet, Joe was relentlessly harassed and forced to resign from her position on a school board in order to curtail the continued harassment. That particular event demonstrated the way in which the far-right operates, and the lengths to which they will go to destabilize the lives of those whose speech they consider provocative or offensive, even as they do similar things with impunity. I did confirm with Joe prior to releasing this episode that she was okay with this conversation being posted. You can check out the show notes for links to Joe's work. Exvangelical is a production of the Post-Evangelical Post. You can subscribe to the, my newsletter of the same name, the Post-Evangelical Post, at postevangelicalpost.com. Again, that's postevangelicalpost.com because all my ideas begin as puns. You can subscribe for free or upgrade to a paid subscription at four, six, or eight dollars a month and get access to ad free podcast feeds and more. All right, let's get into it. Everybody, and welcome back to Exvangelical. My guest today is Joe Lumen. 
Joe is a podcaster and online educator who specializes in decolonizing faith and spirituality. We're recording this episode on March 10th, 2022, though it may uh, release it a little bit later. Joe, welcome to the show. Oh, Blake, thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. As you may know, I like to start my interviews really just by learning about where my guests grew up. I did listen to a recent episode of your new show, The Living Room Podcast, where you mentioned you grew up in Colombia. Is that right? Yes, I did. I did. I grew up in Bogota, in Colombia, and I really had a fun upbringing. I I loved growing up in Colombia. I moved here just... In 2006, I can't do math these days. <laughs> <laughs> so whatever. In 2006, I moved to the United States. So that was that was good times right before the recession. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I I time everything really well. Definitely, <laughs> I left the church right before Trump too. Like me, <laughs> like I, I time everything just beautifully. There you go. Great. So you got a couple of good years in before the <laughs> before yeah. the recession. <laughs> and then uh, one or two years and before before Trump. Yes, excellent, excellent work on my part. Awesome. Prophetic work, one would say. <laughs> <laughs> and did you grow up in, within evangelicalism or did you grow up in a different sort of faith tradition and then you were introduced to the wonderful world of evangelicalism later? Yes. So this magical world of evangelicalism was something that I was introduced later. I I was 14 years old. And in Colombia, I grew up in a very Catholic culture. So I was baptized when I was a baby. I have pictures of my baptism. So when people tell me that I'm not a Christian, I can still claim Catholicism because they have to actually excommunicate me for me (laughs) to stop being a Catholic. So yeah, I grew up, I was baptized. And then I did my first communion when I was nine or or 10. I have all the pictures too. And to do your first communion, you have to go through all of the catechism uh, classes and everything. So I was raised in a in a kind of like Catholic adjacent culture, but my family wasn't particularly religious. My grandparents, particularly my my uh, maternal grandparents, are not very religious. So they'll say some religious things and then mix it with some indigenous spirituality. (laughs) And it's just really funny. And my great grandfather from my grandmother's side was a healing man. So I have all these pictures of him with all of his apothecary, like different things. And it's just really fun to have all of these different traditions come together in my own upbringing. And I remember being afraid of him because he had this, he had long hair and a long beard and people (laughs) would come to him for healings and things like that. And so that That's part of my life too, as much as Catholicism was. And then when I was 14, my father moved to the United States for a job. He was working for this very large company here in the U.S., in in Florida, and he became a Christian. He met a pastor, became a Christian. He made a a non-denominational pastor, but it was really evangelical from AG, really. And we we would come to visit him often, my sister and I. And in those visits, we started obviously talking. For my dad, as soon as you become a Christian, like this push to convert your family is very important. Like it's just really. And so he started talking to my sister and I about it. And uh, that the first time we visited it, when I was 14, by the end of that summer, my sister and I raised our hand at church and became brand new baby Christians. And so it began, right? When we were teenagers and so impressionable, it began kind of this process of becoming Christians. And I took it very, very seriously, especially as I like went through college and then got older, I took it very seriously. So I moved to the U.S. in part because of Christianity. When you went back to Columbia, you converted when you visited your visited your father, and then did you you spend 
after you visited, you moved back to Columbia. Was yes. was there, and I'm sorry for pronouncing it the way I do. It's no, I'm, you're fine. I'm from Indiana. I'm very bad. At- <laughs> <laughs> you're fine. <laughs> In Columbia, was there was was there a large evangelical presence, um, or you mentioned that it was very culturally Catholic? Yes, and that seems that uh, for me, growing up, I grew up in small town Indiana, and I knew literally one Catholic family, and the yeah. rest of the surrounding people, just the culture that I was in, the milieu was all, you know, Protestant white uh, white families. So it's sort of the inverse there. Did you have an evangelical presence though, like within Columbia that, or were you sort of finding your way within Catholicism, but with this sort of evangelical orientation? So a little bit of both. Catholicism is definitely the majority uh, religion in Colombia, and most people are very acquainted with Catholicism, but there is a very large evangelical presence that has been growing since probably the 1960s, 1970s in Colombia. Many of them from uh, missionaries that have moved, Australian missionaries and American missionaries that have moved. So there was a church, my sister and I, there was a youth group that my sister and I went to, and this youth group met at the cities like where they hold this concert venue. They met there on Friday nights, and it's where they hold concerts in Bogota. One of the places where they hold concerts in Colombia, like major concerts. Uh, that's where, when Guns N' Roses came to Colombia, that's where they had the concert. And this is where the youth group would meet. So it was this giant ordeal. And the pastor from that church actually has a church in Miami, and still does. And the church in Colombia is very, very large. And then the other church that we were connected with, the church that we left when we left Colombia, was a church that was started by Australian missionaries. Very, very evangelical. They were connected with Planet Shakers. They were connected with Hillsong. And they were connected. And the pastor who was born in Australia but came to Colombia when he was a child, he was he went back to Dallas to study at Christ for the Nations. And so very acquainted with all of these kind of like mega churches in the global north and looking very similar too. So the band from this church that we left, it's called Su Presencia. It's a very large church. It has, I think at this point, they have over 100,000 people in different cities in Colombia. And the the wait to get into the church, because Colombia is different. We are a little bit more organized in some aspects. And you can tell people what to do more than you can Americans, because freedom. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> but you have to stay in line for a good hour and a half before the services to be able to get in. And you couldn't sit wherever you wanted. They'll sit you down because they had to occupy every single one of the seats, because then otherwise people didn't fit. And they had eight services on weekends. And it was it was it's it's wild. It's a whole entire operation. And the band of the of the church travels around the world like Hillsong does and does concerts. And so huge evangelical presence. And still, the country is a very Catholic country. So a little bit of both. Interesting. Yeah, I wasn't I my my knowledge of I know that like a lot of evangelical apologists quote that there are a lot of global evangelicals. And they, that's a way for them to deflect white evangelical sin. Totally. And. <laughs> That's why I mentioned the missionaries, because while, yes, they are these giant churches all in South America and in, you know, Central America, all over Latin America, you can always trace them to missionaries. Always. When did you end up moving back to the States? Yeah. So I would come and visit my dad pretty much every summer and sometimes in the summer and the winter break. And that was really fun because he lived in Orlando and we would go to Disney a lot. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So that was fun for me. But... I didn't move to the, I mean, I planned on moving to the U.S. when I graduated high school. That was my first plan to move to the U.S. 
And the plan was to do master's commission at the church that we were going to in Florida and take one year to do master's commission and then go back and do college. But my mom was my mom, who was not a Christian at the time, not yet, and very opposed to Christianity at the time, too. She was like, absolutely not. So she actually paid for my tuition at the university that I got, you know, in in Colombia. She paid for the tuition and she's like, the tuition is paid. So. <laughs> what are you going to do? And this was a private university. It's one of the top universities in Colombia. And the tuition is really expensive. So I felt, and she also bought me a car. She's like, and you have a brand new car. So what are you going to do? And I was like, well, <laughs> I'm going back. So I went back and I got my bachelor's. She, she just wanted me to get my bachelor's. So I got my bachelor's and I kind of double majored. In Colombia, majors work a little bit different, but I kind of double majored on, uh, it was computer science, which is what she told me that she would pay for, and literature with an emphasis on biblical studies, uh, which is what I wanted to do, but she didn't want me to do that. But she agreed to pay for both if I did the other one. Like if she was like, if you have an engineering, if you have something to fall back into financially at some point. And I was like, sure. So I did both of them. And yeah, it was a really interesting experience for me me because the biblical studies that I was doing were, uh, it was a secular, this is a secular university. It has absolutely no connection to any churches. And so it, most of the teachers were actually Jewish or atheist. And we were looking at the Bible from specifically a literary standpoint. Like we were reading the Bible as an ancient literary work of, uh, as an ancient work of literary, uh, you know, like yeah, ancient literature, that's it. And just reading it that way was really insightful for me, especially when I was talking to the Jewish professors, because uh, the Jewish professors were, were talking about it in such a different way than I had heard it. And while I didn't recognize it at the time, and I didn't have the language at the time, I believe that some of my deconstruction, whatever we want to call deconstruction, started in those conversations, in those classes, where I was looking at all of these narratives from such a different perspective and such a different point of view than on Sundays when I was listening to these pastors talk about these things. Yeah, there's there's a, a, a spinoff p- podcast of Inglorious Pastors called The Twisted Sisters, and they always call it Unraveling. I don't know if you've listened to them or, or talked to any of those those women on that podcast, but they they call what you know what we call un, uh, deconstruction. We've all sort of landed on that term for better or worse, but they use that term like unraveling. And it's always interesting to learn what's sort of began or what sort of, you know, allowed a little crack to form uh, within within evangelicalism. Yeah. And I think that most of us don't even recognize when that process began until the process is further matured. And then we look back and we're like, oh, that process began way before I even noticed that it had begun. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's it's always interesting. And the the funny thing is, you know, a lot of there are quotes from Bible college students in the 40s and 1940s and 50s who lament the fact that they went to college because they're learning these things that upset them because they were taught something different. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> even even then. And that was somewhat your experience through literature at a secular school. And it was my experience at a Christian college, you know, of, of engaging in the literature has a different effect than, than what people think it might. Absolutely. And it's funny because, I mean, we've, we've heard it over and over, right? The problem and the reason why you've deconstructed, unraveled, why you are walking away from the faith that you were given is because you don't know. It's because you haven't studied. And it's like, it's exactly the opposite. <laughs> like 100% the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. So. So what sort of, what did you enjoy about, about those classes as far as what you were studying and how they were presented? 
Yeah. Well, I love reading and I love books. I have always loved books and reading. And when, when I was a little girl, my mom would go to these secondhand stores. There is an entire street. It's this long street in Colombia full of secondhand like, books. That's, That's all awesome. they sell, secondhand <laughs> books. And you can go and find these old books that are so cool and have like just the book itself is so cool because it's so old. So she would take me to this street right before any breaks that we had when I was a little girl and I started reading. And she would tell me that I could pick five books. And then as soon as I read them, I could come back and pick five books. And that was how I spent my like a lot of my holidays when I was a little girl, just reading at my grandparents' farm and reading a lot. And and I still love reading. I have this very I don't know, like a deep relationship with reading. I love reading. And so when I went and studied literature, one of the reasons was I wanted to have a master's in journalism because I wanted to write stories that mattered and change the world and, you know, all the things. But also because I love reading so much and I wanted to learn to read in more critical ways and to learn to look beyond what's being written. Like I'm not just reading a story. I'm also reading a part of historical evidence of things that are happening in the world and things that were happening in, in old times. So reading all of these narratives, not as a fact, but, but more as these ancient people were trying to tell a story about something. And what are the things that they are trying to tell us? What are the things that they are trying to communicate? These are not, the goal was not to have a historical account of what was happening, but instead the goal is to understand that these ancient people were trying to communicate their realities. And so we read the Popol Vuh too, and we were comparing the Popol Vuh, and we read different parts of different other traditions, and we were comparing them for the purpose of saying like look at the similarities and look at the differences and how are these similarities and differences what what are they communicating in regards to what these people were trying to communicate and just seeing the amount of similarities in different ancient books and seeing that people were just really trying to explain the human experience and that one book was not more enlightened than another that it was simply different people have different experiences and are trying to to explain that experience in different ways with lack of tools, with a lack of a lot of information that we have today in regards to neuroscience, neurobiology, cosmology. Uh, and still, they are so wildly insightful. Like, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The Vedas are so insightful. The Bible is really, truly so insightful if we read it that way. So for me to, to see it that way, it really helped me to understand that this perhaps was not meant to be read as the word of God. And so I, I always had that kind of struggle inside of me. Like it's not necessarily meant to be read as the word of God. And yet there is this deeper truth inside of these narratives. There are these deeper truths, but depending on what you call God, I understand why you could call it the word of God. So I would even play tricks with my own mind to be able to justify calling it the word of God, even though I knew it wasn't the word of God. Because I needed to be able to, I still cared about fitting into these spaces. It was so much of my identity at this point. Uh, but yeah, like that started, started to give me the language to say, this is not necessarily the word of God, even if there is very deep wisdom in it. Because I've seen deep wisdom in a lot of other different narratives that I was able to study too. That's really interesting. Did, was it either within, either within your upbringing within Catholicism or when you started attending more evangelical churches, was there a lot of emphasis in those spaces to inerrancy um, to the, that particular approach to the biblical texts themselves? Or was it, was that just, was that not emphasized there? 
not in Catholicism. So Catholics believe that the Bible is important, but not inerrant. They believe that it is inspired by God and they read it as inspired by God and they are holy texts, but they are not inerrant. They read it in a very different way than Christians, like evangelical Christians read it. And it wasn't until we got to evangelicalism that it was like, this is inerrant. This is the word of God, like the word of God is so important. So every time that I would read the Bible, because I, I, of course I read it, right? We all read it. I mean, not all of us, but you know what I mean. Those yeah, of us who yeah, walked as far away as possible have actually read it. <laughs> and the more that I read it, the more that I had questions. And my questions were so suppressed that I learned that the only way, like the only spaces where I could bring those questions to was my dad, basically. And so I would ask these questions to my dad and we would have conversations. But I haven't got into this part of the story, of my story. But when I finished college, I moved to the U.S. to actually do an internship similar to Master's Commission. Uh, so this internship was in Las Vegas and I was doing, it was a, it was a mega church and I ended up getting hired for the, by the church too, to be an assistant to the community pastor. And we were actually doing good work, like good community work. We were working with a lot of the communities that are unhoused in Las Vegas and providing a lot of different things, which is a lot of things that I think are fun to do. Like I, I enjoy doing that kind of work. It's what I think matters, but I was also taking classes and the classes were through Oral Roberts University, some of them, and some of them were, were Portland Bible College uh, in order to be able to get ordained later on too. And in these classes, for the first time in my life, I was in classes where questions were not necessarily welcomed, where there were just book answers, like this is what we believe. And questioning this is going to cause people to look down on you in a way. So the, I remember one of the first questions I asked was, I don't understand why Jewish people don't go to the Bible, according to you all. I don't understand. Like, I don't understand. They do we agree that they worship the exact same God? And they were like, yes, they worship the same God. And I was like, so why are they not going to go to the, to the, to heaven? Uh, I don't know what I said before, but why are they not going to go to heaven? And they said, well, because they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And I was like, but they worship the same God. It seems cruel to spend a lifetime worshiping the same God. And then for you all to believe that they don't go to heaven. And they were, the, the answer was read Romans. And I was like, I've read it. <laughs> I've read it. I still disagree, but I learned to just sit down and be quiet and like not bring those questions up because every time I brought them up, the conclusion was you're ignorant, you know, or you're being rebellious all the time. You're being so rebellious, Joe, you're so rebellious. And so I learned not to bring those questions up and not bringing them up and just learning to nod sometimes allowed for me to continue to move up in this hierarchy, this leadership hierarchy that they have in evangelical churches, you know? But the more that I moved up, the more that I asked questions and the more that I asked questions, the more that they were uncomfortable with me. And so we were doing this dance where they hate me, but they love the work that I'm doing. So they keep me around. And the more that they keep me around and give me power inside of the system, the more that I feel free to ask questions and the more they hate me. So it was fun. It was really fun. I had sounds, a great time. Sounds like a good, <laughs> sounds like a good dynamic for everybody. <laughs> yes. Very healthy. <laughs> and that's that's actually not so megachurch type things were you in megachurches in a lot of these scenarios or what could be classified as a megachurch as far as like 2000 plus or 5000 plus or um because that's that's not my experience and so like I I wasn't in all of them of I moved to San Diego to plant a church. Like, no, I wasn't the lead pastor. I was part of the team. So when we moved here, that, that was the first time that I was not in a mega church. I was now in a church plant. And that was a whole entire, like, 
<laughs> yeah, that was my, so I, I, one of the places, the last evangelical church we attended was started as a church plant. I think maybe related to, I think a very loosely affiliated with a church planting network called Converge. I think it's a pretty small one and it never really grew past the plant stage. It didn't, you know, it, be, it stayed a storefront church in Chicago. So like I, like I, as far as like that sort of manic, almost startup style growth, like I never, never experienced that. Was that something that you were experienced as far as like growth? Oh, it was a whole entire thing. So the pastor that was in charge of the internship in Las Vegas was being abused in the church in Las Vegas. And he was like, we can do better. We can do better than these. And he ended up cho- choosing to move to San Diego to start a church. And a lot of us interns moved with him. and. He was talking about, you know, like he was talking about, we can do better. We can have a church where, where there is healthy community, where questions are welcomed, where people are not being mistreated. But of course, he didn't even take the time to address all of the trauma that he was subjected to. And so he ended up becoming what he what he was fighting against. He ended up becoming the exact same type of pastor that had abused him, but it took years. So at the beginning, we were in downtown San Diego and we were talking about how can we do work with the community, really like really meet the community, really start working with different people that are represented in the community. And we started doing really good work. So every first Sunday of the month, we would have an entire store where because there is a lot of people that are, are experiencing homelessness in San Diego because of the weather and so every first of the month we would just open the doors and we would have donations from Walmart and we would have donations that were like brand new things that Walmart would give us that they couldn't resell because people have returned them and I, we would go and pick them up in all of our cars and come and set them all up and all of these people could come and take whatever they wanted but we would set it up as a store and they didn't need to pay for it it was just for the for the purpose of giving them the dignity of your going through a store and buying all of these things for you even though you don't have to pay a dime and then we would offer them street tacos so we had this family that had a taco truck and they would donate most of these and we we, we the church gave them some money but we would donate the food and all of the things and that work was meaningful to me that work was important to me i felt like i was doing something of value but as the churches started growing we started moving not only away from downtown physically because we couldn't afford to be downtown anymore but also because the church wasn't growing as fast as the pastor wanted to it was never going to grow as fast as he wanted to in downtown san diego like that's just not the place so he started to move toward more of the suburbs of san diego and right now he's 45 minutes away like the church is still going, but 45 minutes out of San Diego. So, but yeah, he started moving out. And as he moved more and more out, the church started shifting more and more away from this community work that I was most interested in. So we were doing also work with human trafficking at the time. What is this organization? Invisible Children was a big deal and they were right here in San Diego. We were blocks away from each other. So we were doing work with Invisible Children. We were doing work with all of the people that were working inside of Invisible Children. And all of that work at the time, it seemed very meaningful. Right now, I can see a lot of the saviorism in it. And right now, I would do things very differently. But back then, it seemed meaningful and it didn't seem like, hey, people come to church. But it was more like, hey, we're going to offer something meaningful to you. And we worked with one school that is specifically for children experiencing homelessness. And so we would 
pay for all of their supplies. We would get them backpacks and they could pick their things. Like they could choose all of their things. We would ensure that we they had Thanksgiving dinners. We would ensure that they had Christmas gifts. And all of that, I, of course, like a lot of it is saviorism now, but a lot of it was also really important, meaningful work for us back then, coming from Las Vegas, where the work was a little bit different too. So we were doing that. But as the churches started growing, the church became more and more an evangelical church where it was like, come and see, come and sit, come and listen to this pastor. And he became more and more more narcissistic in his behavior as that was happening to the point that I just, I couldn't be there anymore. That's what led to this sort of untenable point was when it became. Uh, yes. Uh, it, the moment, like the moment that I said, I can't do this anymore. Cause I tried to leave many, many times before. And every time I tried to leave, it was, Oh, Joe, but we were about to make you a pastor finally. And I was like, okay, fine, I'll stay. Like, there is always that something that they try to hook you and bring you back, right? But the moment that I was like, there is no way that you can bring me back. Like, there's nothing that you could offer me to make me come back was when he changed my job description without telling me, but he had told other people. So at the <laughs> time, I was leading a lot of the work of educating people. So I, we were offering classes that were being credited. People would get credits for these classes. And all of the classes were on actual biblical literacy, because I believe that giving people biblical literacy is actually the work that the church should be doing like if you give them biblical literacy they don't they don't need the church what like they become empowered themselves to do the work of actually transforming their communities which has always been my spiel and so i was doing these classes of giving people biblical literacy and i loved doing that at one point we had quite of like a large group of people taking all of these classes and the pastor did not like that I was doing that all that much. And so he changed my job. He closed down the program of giving people these classes. And he said that he wanted me to become the marketing pastor. There is nothing that could be more far away from the person that I am than marketing. Like nothing. There is nothing that could be more opposed to the human that I am than marketing. And beyond that, marketing a church. And I was like, you've not paid attention to who I am in the last 10 years that we've been working together. And so I told him like, you know what? We're done. I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm, I'm absolutely done. I don't, I don't, I, I, I like you keep not seeing me. You just want to keep using me because I do good work. You just keep using me and I'm, I'm totally over it. So that's when I was done and I left because I couldn't. And I, I loved teaching the classes. I, I really did. And he took it away from me without any conversation, without any. And he just said the conversation we had when I told him, you can't do that ever again. You can't just take things away from me without having a conversation. He said, I need you to understand that you need to trust me. I know what's best for this church. And I was like, so I don't exist. I don't have a voice. You think you know better for me, including for me. And so things just really like went south from there and we couldn't reconcile neither our relationship, like our work relationship or our personal relationship. It went, it just, that disrupted our relationship in all possible ways. And from there, did you, I mean, this was also your, this was also your livelihood. So yeah. what, what was that transition like? And then how did that lead to developing things that that you put, that you now share online, producing content online? That's how we learned of each other, and just because we're in similar sort of in this in the same sort of <laughs> I don't know what, what do you even call what do you like, what's that? We have a lot of mutuals. <laughs> sure. Yes. There you go. There. Yeah. I, <laughs> uh, you I, know, I'm tired of I'm tired of like content creator. It just. Yeah, I hear you. You know, that's it, it's like it's it's the the term that stuck around for a long time because we can't think of a better thing to call yeah people, people that are creative online. <laughs> yeah, 
You know, I, both my husband and I worked for the church. Both of us quit and both of us had resumes that were filled with evangelical names that meant absolutely nothing anymore. And none of these people would have said anything positive about us. So we were left with resumes that had no value. We had nothing, like every time we sat down to write our resumes, we were like, what are we going to do with this? We don't even have people to call. Like there is nobody they could call. And all, you know, like when you leave the church, you also leave most of your relationships and the pastor controlled all of the narrative of our leaving and lied about us. So we also lost all of our personal relationships because we moved to San Diego for this church. So all of our relationships were connected to it. So we had nothing. And mind you, I'm an immigrant. So all of my relationships that I had in the United States were connected to churches. And I had nobody to call that could say one good thing about me. So, and I, I had, we had kids, they were little and we needed to have jobs that gave us enough flexibility to be able to grieve and to navigate through the trauma that we were subjected to. There were a lot of money. There was a lot of manipulation. There was a lot of religious abuse. There was a lot of financial manipulation and financial abuse, a lot of racism that I was subjected to. And we needed to be able to pay our bills, but also have enough space to be able to navigate all of that. And we were paid so poorly inside of the church that our overhead was so low that we could really do any job and we could still survive. So that was similar linings, right? Uh, so we started doing Uber. So my husband was doing Uber for like 10 to 12 hours a day, as long as Uber would let him. And then I would do Uber in the mornings before the kids woke up. And so I would wake up at four in the morning and go do Uber for a few hours. And then my husband would do Uber at night. Like he would, we would put the kids, like he would do it during the day. And then we would put the kids to bed and then he would go up out again so that we could pay our bills. So we both did Uber for a few years and we grieved. We just grieved a lot. And I felt like I was, I tell people this and it sounds like I'm exaggerating, but I really genuinely am not. I felt like I was going crazy. I felt like I was losing and nothing made sense anymore. I, I was suicidal. I was dealing with suicidal ideation. I felt like nothing made sense anymore. I felt so betrayed by every single person that I knew. I had given my everything to this church, my finances, my time, my expertise. I had learned things for it, all of my relationships. I had given everything. And it was so easy for all of them to discard me and to believe all the lies that this pastor said about me. He told them that he sh they shouldn't contact me because I had asked that specifically. I didn't. So nobody was talking to us. And we had two small little girls and a brand new baby and no support system at all. And so it was really painful for us to navigate all of that. And we needed time to grieve. So for two years, I did nothing. I just, I did nothing. I needed to grieve. I needed to sit with all of this pain and know what to do with it. And I needed to know who I was. I didn't know who I was anymore. Uh, for too long, I was Joe the pastor and I was Joe the church leader and I was Joe the Christian. And now I was in my 30s and with children, I was a mom and I didn't know who I was outside of all of those paradigms. And so I needed time to sit down and figure out who I was. So I took two years off everything, like everything. I wasn't serving in any churches. I wasn't going anywhere. I, I was, we were going to churches, but I wasn't getting super involved. And the more involved that I got in a church, the more that I would get hurt. And so I would walk away again. And I remember just standing in a church one time and they were singing that song, No Longer Slaves. It was a brand new song at the time. And they were singing No Longer Slaves. And I felt this is all bullshit. 
you're lying. You don't know what slavery looks like. You don't know what being oppressed feels like. Like this was in a church in Carlsbad, California, you know, so close to the ocean, filled with people that have been always rich, filled with white people. And I was like, what are you even talking about? Like, this makes no sense. You guys all talk about these things and you co-opt and appropriate all of these narratives from people that are marginalized and it means nothing to you. And I started having a hard time breathing because I was like, this is bullshit. This is all bullshit. This is all a lie. My whole entire life has been a lie. And I, I had to walk out and I was starting to hyperventilate. And at the time, Trump was starting to run for office and the pastor made a mention about him and supporting him. And I was like, no, I cannot, I cannot. <laughs> and that was the last time, that was the last time that I was in an evangelical church. And I walked out and I was feeling so, I felt like I was inside, like I was wearing a straight jacket. I couldn't move. I couldn't breathe. I felt so, this was like a physical reaction that I was having. And I left, I got in my car and I needed to drive away from the church. Like my whole entire body was like, get away from this place. So I drove away, left my husband and children at the church because I just needed to leave. I texted him and I was like, hey, I'm supposed to serve today. I was supposed to, they had a little golf cart that you have to drive because people cannot walk so far away from the parking lot to the door. So that was my job that day. I had to drive the stupid golf cart for people. And I told <laughs> him I have to drive the golf cart, but I can't go back. I'm, I'm done. I don't care anymore. So can you drive the golf cart? And then I'm never coming back. I'm done. I never want to go back to the church. And at the time, my husband was still quite evangelical still. And so that was hard for him. But I was like, I, if you want a wife that wants to go to church with you, you're shit out of luck because that won't be me. I won't come. I don't want to go back to churches ever again. I'm over it. I'm done. And so we had to navigate all of that. But yeah, for two years, I did nothing. I would go to church and drive the golf cart. That's all I wanted to do. Because driving the golf cart was actually really fun for me. And I was like, fine, I'll, I'll drive the <laughs> golf cart. That's all I'll do. But I couldn't get involved past that. And I had, I, even in that church, I, we had to deal with a lot of misogyny. And that was so painful for me. And so I, I, I left. We, we left. I dealt with misogyny and racism. So even then, I was standing there listening to all these white people talk about how they are no longer slaves. And I'm like, no, but you're a fucking, like huge group of racists so there's that so yeah it was just really painful for me so it was two years of me just sitting with a lot of grief and a lot of not knowing who I was and a lot of losing my identities and in that time I went to Turkey with my family we were there for quite a few weeks and we met a lot of Muslim people and talked to a lot of Christians that had different ways of being a Christian and I went to the seven churches of Revelation and I read my Bible in these spaces and places thinking about the marginalization, like I was walking through underground cities, entire underground cities that were built for Christians, thinking the reality of these people is absolutely nothing. Like it has nothing to do with the reality of Americans. It has nothing to do with the reality of the American church. These people created these underground churches and protected themselves from this Roman empire that was going to destroy them. And Christians in America, in like with at, at the height of their privilege, are talking about being no longer slaves. And I just, it felt so gross to me. It felt like the, the, the absolute, I, I don't want to use the wrong word here, but it felt like the absolute bastardization, I guess, of of uh, faith that was supposed to be for people that were in marginalized identities. And it felt like privileged identities took it without any consideration of, of marginalization and made it something so absolutely disgusting. 
and I hated that I participated in it. I almost felt dirty. I almost felt, and this is going to maybe be activating for people, but it felt to me like, like I was violated in a way, you know, like there was this violation of my spirituality like uh, there was this and if you don't add at the time i was also reconciling with all of my indigenous roots and i was like you not only violated me by stealing all of this indigenous beauty and indigenous spirituality from me but on top of that the one that you gave me wasn't the beautiful marginalization like marginal like that came from the marginalized people that were both jewish and early christians but instead you gave me this bastardized ver bastardized version that is a weapon of oppression and you made me be uh, you made me be a, a weapon of oppression myself, to myself and to those around me. You made me become a, a traitor to my own people. And, and that felt really, it was really painful for me to navigate all of that. Yeah. And that's, well, sometimes I, you, I know this is an audio show, but, but honestly, sometimes it's good to <laughs> let there be a moment to process things. I, I'm there's a couple of different directions I feel like we could go from what you're what what you've just explored. Uh, and I'll I'll let you choose which which direction you you want to go. I'd I'd love to hear a bit more about why why that part that you reckoned that you had to reckon with as a as a person of color and white evangelicalism. That's something that that is not that is not always apparent to people when they first begin to question evangelicalism, if they, if they are white. And like when I started, as I had start, started this podcast almost six years ago, and I started doing some of these things publicly, I, I learned within, within the first year to, with, to articulate that it's white evangelicalism. There are other evangelicalism traditions that are independent of white evangelicalism that have their own issues and have their own things, but white evangelicalism has to reckon with these things. And there is a difference of what someone that is white has to reckon with and what a person of color has to reckon with. So uh, you, you sort of, you, you did talk a little bit about that, about grieving what, how, how you were taught to perceive the uh, other parts of your heritage. I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that, or we could go in any other direction. I sort of <laughs> lost my alternative that I was thinking of <laughs> uh, as I was as I was walking through that, <laughs> queuing you up for that. Yeah, <laughs> so, I was I was talking a lot, so <laughs> I get that. <laughs> no, that's yeah, and I mean, I I I loved every everything you had to share. It, it's not that, so I, I apologize. Maybe maybe we could just go down that route then, yeah, as far as sure. like talking about. Ta talking about the things that become important for a black or indigenous or a person of color to to work on because i think even now years years later where uh you and i are both participating in online spaces and there's a term that i've that i've really started to to favor to think about social media as networked publics um, it's it's a sociological term that um, that Dana Boyd, uh, she's a she's a researcher at Microsoft, and she's written a number of books about the digital lives of teens and things like that, as well as just social media in general. And she calls them networked publics, which I think is really salient, like a very very good way to to think about it because people are working them out, working these things out in public, and there's value to that. But then there's also Whenever we do talk online, we're sharing this space with other people. And 
It can be perceived. It can be read by people we don't even know are reading it. And one thing that happens is someone that's white may be reckoning with this from one perspective, and someone that is a, a that is that has another identity is totally they're dealing with it from a marginalized identity. And then those are two very different approaches to this. So that's that's but I'll I'll turn it back to you now now that yeah. <laughs> I've given my own sh- sort of sh- spiel here. Yeah, no, but I <laughs> I hear you and I think that we don't uh, the conversation about how this experience of unraveling deconstruction, you know, like grappling with your faith, asking questions of your faith, that experience is very different depending on the different aspects of your identity. It's different for women to go through all of it. As it is for men, it's different for non-binary people, it's different for LGBTQ people, and it's certainly different for people of color, also very different for someone like me that is an immigrant. I am an immigrant, and I was telling my my partner recently, because he's a white man, and I was telling him, not recently, we've been talking about this for a while, about how I do not know what it feels like to go to foreign spaces. I don't know what it feels like to go to places that that are not Colombia, like anywhere that is not Colombia. I don't know what it feels like to be celebrated for being there. He does. Everywhere that he steps foot in, he's celebrated. Thank you for coming. We're so happy that you're here. But not me. I'm met with a lot of suspicion everywhere. Like even in Mexico, I'm met with suspicion because I'm Colombian. And so that definitely affects the way in which I experience the world. And it affects the way in which I experience religion too. And so while religion might have been only oppression for white people, for people of color, it's also been a tool of liberation. So it's different for us to walk away from this tool of liberation, from recognizing that the divine is within us. When we were told our whole lives that we were less than, that the divine is not with us, it's really easy for some white people to walk away from a narrative that told them that they were not good enough because God was disappointed in them that they were born in sin. Of course, we all want to walk away from that. But at the same time, you don't have to grapple with these narratives that tell you that you are not loved because you are not white, that you are not acceptable because you're not white. And then you find in a lot of these theologies and a lot of these, not in the toxic theologies, but you find in a lot of these other theologies in these different narratives that come from the margins, these ideas that you are indeed divine that there is this divinity that is intrinsic of you, that comes from within you, that cannot be taken away. And there is a liberatory aspect of those things that we cannot deny. So when when white Christians walk away from the toxic abusive narratives and they start talking about how all religion is harmful, they are erasing the experience of people of color. They are erasing the experience of you know, Jewish people, they are erasing the experience of many marginalized people that have found in religion and in spirituality and in faith an absolute tool of liberation that we've been able to see ourselves as divine, see ourselves as good, see ourselves as valid because of who we are given the theologies that we've been able to find. And erasing all of those things is just as harmful as the narratives that we found inside of evangelicalism that told us that we were not good enough because we were born sinners. It's it's the same to tell us you're not good enough because you're sinners and the tools that you've been able to find to fight your marginalization, they are also bad too because we said so. So being able to recognize that those things can coexist and that different people that have different identities are going to find in different narratives, in different paradigms, they are going to find different things. And so long as we are not causing harm to other people, 
any weapon, I'm sorry, any tool that you find to be able to survive the dumpster fire of the world that we have right now is a good weapon. It's a good tool. It's a good tool. So long as you're not causing harm, that's a good tool. And when you're causing harm with that tool, it becomes a weapon. And we can have the conversation about, hey, you're using your tool as a weapon and we are not going to tolerate that. That's not going to be okay in our spaces. And we can have that conversation and we can make a space for that conversation and yet not demand that people put down a tool of liberation. So we can have both, you know? And so if you have a lot of privilege in the world, living religion might not just be hard for you. Might be like, yeah, I don't care because I have so many spaces that are safe. I have so many tools that the world has given me and granted me to be able to navigate all of these things. But for marginalized identities, we are not filled with tools. It's not that tools are just, you know, safe spaces and tools are not available for us. So theology is actually an incredible uh, an incredibly powerful tool for liberation. And you can ask any Jewish person about that. You can ask Black people about that. You can ask Harriet Tubman about that. Because Harriet Tubman, before she died, she quoted the Bible. Because her work was deeply, deeply informed by narratives of liberation that she found in the Bible. And I always tell people, if if these narratives were not meant to be liberatory narratives, then tell me what do we do with the fact that the slave Bible had 90% of the Old Testament removed from it? Why? Why would 90% of the Old Testament be removed if these are not supposed to be liberatory narratives? They knew that if, if, if enslaved people would read these narratives, they would find in it a tool for liberation. They would. There is no way that you cannot. The problem is when you turn that into a weapon of oppression and that we continue to push against. And we can push against that and also hold the reality that it is a tool of liberation, both. But a lot of spaces don't make that nuance available because, you know, whiteness is all encompassing and and what we do is we center the experience of the most privileged amongst us we center the experience of white people we center the experience of cisgender heterosexual people we often center the experience of men but also white women white cisgender heterosexual women we continue to center the experience of those who have the finances to be able to go to therapy not recognizing that therapy itself is a white construct it's a white it's created by white people inside of white spaces and that most therapists are white people like the majority of therapists are white people and so we don't recognize all of those things and we just say hey drop your tools because they've been used as weapons against me not realizing that they have also been used as tools that 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 have allowed for the liberation of a people and so i continue to consider myself a christian though i do not align with most all doctrines of the evangelical church and so they tell me that i'm not a christian but i don't care like i told you earlier like catholics still claim me so i'll be a catholic (laughs) Uh, i don't care but yeah i i have found in theology so many beautiful weapons uh, i'm sorry tools of liberation that i refuse to let it go just because some people that were that that you know that are in privileged identities and that didn't have ways to handle with the narcissism inside of supremacy culture because they choose to use it as a weapon of oppression it doesn't mean that i have to drop it as a tool of liberation it doesn't and there is violence in demanding that we drop these tools of liberation because they were used as weapon of oppression we can we can actually hold the complexity of that we can i can we can so i've that's that's what I've been doing. Just I continue to hold on to the tools and let go of the weapon over and over again. And that applies to theology. And it applies to a lot of different things in my life. It applies to the fact that I am an educated person. It applies to the fact that I went to academia, that I have a master's degree. And I am not going to weaponize all of those things, but I will definitely use the tools that 
those things allowed for me to acquire. I will use the tools and not to use the weapon that they can be. And I, I think that we are not very good at holding the complexities of all of that because dualism is such a big part of supremacy culture and specifically Christian supremacy is good or bad with us or against us is like, you know, these black and white narratives all the time that when we leave that, we might leave the religion, but we don't leave the dualistic mindset that if you're not an atheist, a full atheist then you're against us if you're not in this camp if you're not for us if you don't agree with all of these things with us then you're bad and and there is no good or bad there is just complex i don't when people tell me like oh you just think you're the only good person i'm like oh absolutely not i'm not good never have claimed to be good i'm not kind never have claimed to be kind i'm doing my best trying to minimize harm but i have all the potential to cause harm and and I don't want to be perceived as good. I want to I want to be perceived as human. Because as much as telling people that they are bad and that they are subhuman is dehumanizing, expecting perfection of people is also dehumanizing. That's why a lot of white people have a really hard time with accountability because the expectation of perfection of whiteness has dehumanized them too. Because we cannot be perfect. We're just complex. That's it. That's all we are. Yeah, and I, I, I'm, I definitely am on a similar wavelength as far as like, I, I personally am, am in this sort of, I've gone through my own sort of liminal periods of like not wanting to commit to a, not wanting to commit to a label of Christian or whatever. And also, also not caring. And like, also, and like, I've, I've gone through different phases of that. And, and to your point, what I, about the ways in which theologies can be liberatory especially for people who have no other who have no other outlet or no other tool with which to find that for themselves i i definitely agree that those those tools have also all the validity and they don't need anyone else's anyone else to validate them they just they just need to validate it for themselves I, um, Thich Nhat Hanh and uh, Living Buddha, Living Christ, have you, that book is wonderful. And the phrase that bowled me over and like stuck with me, has stuck with me for years is that he talks about how, how it, your beliefs will change. They're supposed to. And like, it's your, it's your practices that sustain and shape you over time. And it was, it was that, that is so antithetical to what, fundamentalist evangelicalism teaches that your beliefs will you it, your beliefs can only grow in a particular way they can only be expressed in a particular way but we can actually when you let that go and you say oh we are trying all of these things are are millennia long metaphors <laughs> that yeah. humans that humans have been trying to to name something to grasp something and yes people have used it as weapons and people have used it as ways to console themselves and to find power, not, not just imperial power, but trust in themselves. Right. Yeah. It's, it's hard to deny all that. Right. Um, and I think it's also hard to grapple with it because you think that you leave this paradigm that is so harmful and so toxic, right? Evangelicalism, white evangelicalism is so harmful and toxic and you leave it. And then you start finding yourself in the toxicity of the indoctrination 
of it, the supremacy indoctrination of all of it, because it's not, it doesn't stop when you leave the religion. It doesn't stop when you stop believing in hell. It doesn't stop when you start believing, stop believing in a God. The indoctrination and the, the, the brain, the neuropathways that make you believe that you are better than, that you're superior are still there. They are still there. That, that doesn't go away just because you left the religion. They continue to be there. And the, the grappling with that, is, it can be really painful too. And that was in those two years that I was doing nothing, I was sitting down with all of that reality and recognizing the ridiculous amount of classism inside of me, the fat phobia inside of me, the ableism inside of me, the internalized racism too, the internalized queer phobia inside of me and how all of that was both painful and, and I was, it was causing me to deal with a lot of self-hatred and also to hate others. And it was so painful to look at myself in the mirror and recognize all those shadows and, and have to grapple with those shadows and say, wow, I am not a good person. I have pushed queer phobic narratives um, because I was indoctrinated into them. I believe that fat people are less than. I believe that they are lazy because I've been told that thing. I've, I've been told that poor people are lazy too. And I am a poor person. Like, you know, at the time I was on medical, I was on uh, EBT, I had an EBT card and I'm like, but I think poor people, but I think that somehow I'm the exceptional poor person, but I'm poor, I'm a poor person. And, and having to grapple with all of that, the ways in which supremacy is inside of me, I don't want to say was because it is inside of me. And I recognize it. Sometimes it still comes up and I'm like, the hell did that come from? Are you kidding me? You know, I, I started, I told someone recently, like I gained weight through, I've gained weight through this pandemic because yeah, uh, normal. And yeah. I was looking at myself in the mirror the other day and I said, gosh, I look gross. And I immediately recognized the fat phobia in that. And I was like, who told me that? I don't. I actually look fine. I'm a, I'm a woman that is about, it's nearing her forties, you know, and late thirties and had four children that delivered four children, grew four human beings in her body. I look great. My body has done a miraculous thing of surviving all of these, including the pandemic. And who told me that? And why is that still in some nooks and crevices of my brain? And, you know, and I, I love recognizing that not because it's pretty to recognize the fat phobia that is, inside of, is still inside of me that causes also self-hatred, but because it's beautiful that I can recognize it now and that I can look at myself and say, we will not do that. That's not. You know, that's still there inside of you. So there is still work to be done in regards to fat phobia. And I'm going to call you out. You're going to be an accountable person that can sit down and say, yeah, there is fat phobia inside of me and I will not tolerate it to myself. I won't tolerate it to myself. And so it's hard. It's hard to sit with all of that and recognize all these very ugly parts inside of you. It doesn't feel good. But then once you are able to make peace with the shadows of you and you're able to make peace with the fact that you have so much beauty inside of you and also a shit ton of ugly inside of you, then you're able to accept just who you are, where you are. And, and then the journey becomes totally different because it's this journey of I accept who I am right here, right now. And I am moving towards healthier, more wholesome ways of being with myself and being with others. And then that changes everything because then it becomes about I will not betray myself. And betraying yourself means lying about who you are. 
and lying about what you need to do and who you need to be around and you know lying just just not being honest about who you are and where you are uh so i will not betray myself anymore which will cause for me to not betray anyone around me either and so it changes everything but it's a long journey of making peace with you first after a lifetime of being told who you need to be who you should be and and stepping away from i will not be anymore who i should be i am making a commitment to being who i am and that's why i love this idea of god being i am because i can relate to that divinity is in me the moment that i am i just yeah. i am and i don't have to perform i don't have to fit into boxes i don't have to do anything i just get to be that's it and th- th- in that i can relate to a notion of divinity i don't believe in god as a being anymore but i do believe with this notion of divinity is just the state of being mhm yeah paul tillich described it as the ground of being that's how he that's how he saw that i i, I like that <laughs> yeah me too um there's yeah there's there's a lot of different ways a lot of different ways to you know a lot of different people that have used different metaphors but that's the one that that came to mind when you said that Building off of what you said about, you know, sort of reckoning with the shadows, your shadow self or parts of your, like the things that are harder to work on, the things that, you know, within evangelicalism, we were taught that it was, you know, either original sin or something like something along those lines that you're inherently evil, that you're just a, that you are nothing without God. And then you don't develop a sense of self outside of god and then the holy spirit really just becomes a narc on right. you like yeah, right. <laughs> uh, just this inner narc and then like once you leave that and then you're you start to reckon with other things and you don't necessarily have that framework but you still have baggage you still have these things to work through i've been th- thinking lately ab- uh, about how there's different work that have to, has to be done people that are working working through their own personal issues and um if they, they're black they may be turning to something like black liberation uh, or others who are decolonizing christianity's imperialist impact um versus the work that you know white people have to do with reckoning with their own whiteness and white supremacy and how their own sort of ancestors cast off their their own histories as peoples from places for this generic whiteness those are like very different t- aspects of the work and i and a lot of times that comes across whenever we share things online in common spaces like that's those are very different ways to relating to that really intensely personal work that also contributes to these shared social places uh, and i'm i'm always i'm not great at conflict I like I I like to not have it. <laughs> um, and sometimes that sometimes that happens and I think sometimes it's because because we're working on different things and those those things clash. Yeah. I don't really have an easy segue uh you know in into that but that's the sort of the way you were talking about how like you you left evangelicalism you left that understanding of religion you still have this these things that you're working through regarding different internalized phobias and prejudices and we all have different ones to work through that are that like there are broad ones based on our identities and then there's very particular ones 
Like I have self-image problems. I have issues relating, like a lot of embodiment language doesn't relate to me because I had a, um, I have epilepsy and I have a sort of contentious relationship with my body. Like I don't trust that it's always going to be reliable. Yeah. So like trusting my body is like the, sometimes the last thing I want to do. That makes sense. <laughs> so like with, with all that, with all those things as considerations, like how do you think we can, when we come back to these common spaces, whether it's online or in person or both, the, the work of, of recognizing these things and is there a way to do that humanely that respects like the different aspects of work that we have to do? Yeah. Yeah, there is. I think that we, like, of course, we have to talk about boundaries, right? And I think that we all have to recognize what our boundaries are and be able to verbalize those boundaries as best as we can, right? So I, I don't mind people that can communicate their boundaries to me. Like, you know, I've had people that tell me, I, I absolutely love you. I love everything that you have to say, but I don't like when you talk about racism. And I tell them, thank you so much for sharing that with me. I will not change, but now you can set certain boundaries with me. And I that's totally fine. And when I am having conversations about racism, you can absolutely walk away. You can absolutely take time away. You can not engage. You can block me on social media if you want to. You cannot participate in any space where I'm going to have that conversation. And I don't hold you, I don't hold you anything against you for that reason. Like, I respect that. I can hold, you can hold that boundary with me. And then I can hold boundaries with you too. Because if you are not doing the work of reconciling, or not reconciling, but perhaps challenging the racism that we've all been indoctrinated into, then you eventually are going to cause harm to me. And so I have to set boundaries. And I think that making peace with the fact that we don't have to be close to everybody and we don't have to have a close relationship with everybody. And that's totally fine. That's absolutely fine. Also, we have to talk about that, that like what we were talking earlier about how we have all of these uh, neuropathways that have that inform the ways in which we engage in the world. So people think that one, like we have to be friends with everybody and we have to run away from conflict or run away from disagreement that we cannot move unless we agree. Th that, those are conditionings of evangelicalism. Those are conditionings of supremacy culture. These, you know, that come from dualism. You are either right or you're wrong. There is no in between. Like, it's one or the other. And instead we can say, perhaps we're both right in some things and we are just not meant to do this together. And that's completely fine. That's absolutely fine. We have these ideas that relationships have to be forever. They don't. Relationships can last just for some time and they were good for the time that they lasted. And now we're moving in different directions and that's totally fine. And I can beat you well on your journey and remember the time that we spent together with a lot of fondness and that's it. Like, you know, so we can, we can talk about how we can, ex we can actually create communities where people get to be individuals, but we are not going to tolerate harm, right? So the moment that you cause harm, there is going to be a conversation of, hey, you caused harm. And then we have to talk about what does accountability look like? And what, uh, how can we lean into accountability? Because inside of evangelicalism, inside of supremacy culture, 
accountability is not even a conversation that we talk about. Like there is no accountability. There is just, hey, you have to repent. And repentance means saying out loud, I messed up. I'm sorry. And it depends too, right? Depending on how much power you have inside of evangelicalism, repentance looks different. Because if you are really low in that hierarchy, you are going to be asked to step in front of the whole church and ask for repentance. And then you're going to be stripped of any kind of power that you've had. But if you are higher up, they are going to allow for you to just say, I'm so sorry, I'm going to take a three-month sabbatical and then come back and write a book about what I learned. And none of that is accountability. None of it is. You know, accountability requires for us to understand that there is a conversation that has to be had with all the parties involved, where everybody gets to be heard, where everybody gets to be able to share their perspective, where there is no judgment for that sharing, and people get to speak about themselves. But that's a lot of work. So, I think that what we need to understand is that we don't have, when we've left evangelicalism, we don't have the framework to be able to do restorative, restorative justice work or transformational justice work. We don't have the framework to be able to do accountability well. We don't have the framework to be able to do, to be accountable people, to be able to have these conversations, to do conflict in a healthy way. Because I love conflict. And that's part of being Colombian too, because conflict is kind of like what we do. So I, conflict doesn't scare me. It kind of, I'm like, okay, this is an opportunity for growth. Like we got these, we can do these. Like it's, it's going to suck and it's going to be hard, but it's an opportunity for growth. So conflict looks a little bit different for me now, but it was a lot of work of reconciling a lot of the different narratives that I was told about conflict. Like if there is conflict, then there must be sin. If people are mad at you, it's because there is, you did something wrong. And I, I, I always took it upon myself because that was the narrative for women, particularly. If there is something wrong, then it means that you did something wrong, that you caused this and so I had to walk away from that and be like not necessarily it could mean that I was perceived in the wrong way or it could be that they did something wrong and I just didn't tolerate it anymore and so being able to recognize like we don't have the best of bedrock to be able to understand restorative justice and transformational justice we don't have the best the best bedrock to be able to have conversations about conflict to have conversations about accountability therefore what does it look like to start learning to do that and start practicing and embodying and even though you I know you don't like embodiment uh, but embodying no, no, by embodying I mean, I mean no, yeah by embodying it. I mean <laughs> what does it mean to actually become accountable people where accountability is not something we do but it's who we are we are unaccountable people that when I cause harm and somebody tells me you caused me harm my instinct is not to protect my reputation but my instinct is to say can you help me understand how because I don't want to do that ever again Help me understand, because right now I don't understand how. And that has happened to me both in public and in private, where people have told me, you've caused me harm, and I genuinely have no idea what they are talking about. Like, I genuinely don't understand how I caused them harm. And I have learned to walk away from the defensive, I didn't, and you're wrong, and this is what I meant, and trying to explain myself, and responding with a lot of defensiveness. I still do sometimes, and when I do, I apologize. But I have learned to say, to move with curiosity, and say, can you help me understand understand how because I don't I don't understand how I'm causing you harm and that is because my experience is so different than yours that's because I don't understand what you're talking about because it's not my reality it's not so the last time I caused harm I think it was because I said something about asexual people and I it was out of ignorance I'm not asexual and I have a couple of friends that are asexual, but we don't talk a lot about that. I mean, we've talked about it, but it's it's not something that we talk about all the time. And it still is not my lived experience. I am not an asexual person. And so I, I said something and I was causing harm and I didn't understand. So I kept 
like, like a being like, that's not what I wanted to say. This is what I wanted to say. And they were like, yeah, but regardless of what you said, you caused harm. I was like, I don't understand how, if you have the bandwidth, can you help me understand how? And they took the time to explain to me how, and it was then so clear. I was like, oh, of course, like, yes, what I said is so dehumanizing. What I said is so harmful. I'm so sorry. And then I went on to repairing the relationship however I you know the best that I could and repairing the harm and saying I'm totally messed up I I didn't understand these and now I understand it better this is what I understand this is the harm that I caused and I commit to learning more about this I commit to learning more about asexual people and I also sent money to the people that took the time to explain things to me to be like I understand that I shot your nervous system like I put your nervous system in the sympathetic you know nervous system and I was you all of the I recognize that all of the hormones that went through your body because of the things that I was saying, because you were feeling attacked and dehumanized, all of that is trauma, is a type of trauma. And, and we don't have to quantify trauma, right? Like it's a type of trauma when you are dehumanized by another person. And so the best thing that I can do right now, because we were far away, is I can send you some money to be able to buy some food and take care of yourself or, you know, get a pedicure or whatever it is to be able to regulate your nervous system because I cost for your nervous system them to be dysregulated i caused that so the only thing that i can do because i cannot show up with you know wine or weed or chocolate or whatever it is that would make it better for me to give you a hug and say i'm so sorry at least i can send you some money and say hey i'm so sorry that i caused for your system to be dysregulated by my ignorance and i can recognize that because i am not committed to being a good person anymore i used to be I used to be. And sometimes that still comes up. And I'm like, I don't want to be perceived as a bad person. And then I remember, well, I am. You know, sometimes I am a bad person. And sometimes I can't cause harm. But the more that we divest from the narrative of being a good person, the more that we, that we divest from the narrative of being, of protecting our reputation, the more that we... The more that we divest from this uh, fear of conflict and from fear of being held accountable, from fear of messing up, making mistakes, the more that we divest from perfectionism, the more that we're able to lean into conflict, the more that we're able to lean into the lessons that we can learn when we mess up. Because the, the work of justice requires that we mess up a lot. It does. And so I'm not afraid of messing up anymore, even though I still hate when I do, but I'm not afraid of it anymore because if I am afraid of messing up, then I won't try things. And we need to try things. We need to get creative in order to end oppression. We need to get creative in order to make the world a better place. And that is something that I have a lot of stakes on because the world is not a kind place to people like me. And the world is not going to be a kind place to some of my children because they are brown, because they are the children of marginalized women, because they have some disabilities, because some of them are queer and they've already like told me that. And so I want the world to be a kinder place for my children. Therefore, I have a lot of investment into this justice work and to, into these changing the narratives about marginalized identities. And so I have to learn to try things and I have to learn to lean into the discomfort of trying things that might harm people without being at bad intentions. And as soon as I do, being willing to say, help me understand how and leading with curiosity and not just saying like, oh, okay, yeah, because you're in a marginalized identity, whatever you say, and I bow down. No, the goal is to understand. I need to understand how I caused harm so that I never do it again. So I have to say, help me understand. It's not that I'm being difficult. I need to understand how, because if I don't understand how, I'll do it again. And I don't want to say sorry 
just to appease you. I want to say, I'm sorry. I completely understand. And this will never happen again because I understood completely what I did. And so it's a harder work than just saying, I'm sorry. It's harder work than just posting a, I'm an ally. And you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm giving my peace sign. I'm an ally. That's what my <laughs> daughter does all the time. Um, an ally. It's harder work than saying, than putting BLM on your, on your profiles on social media. It's harder work than carrying around a flag with the queer, whatever queer colors you want to carry. It's the work of saying there are experiences that I don't understand anything about. And I want to become a co-conspirator that disrupts systems of oppression for the purpose of making sure that these people are safe and that means that I'm going to fuck up several times and that means also that I'm going to be willing to say I did please explain to me how so that it never happens again so it's the harder work of being human you know and just being like we're going to be in community and we're going to be in relationship and I'm going to be an accountable person that tries a lot of things and also makes a lot of mistakes and is willing to say when I make mistakes I'll correct as soon as I can as quickly as I can and I'll lead with a lot of curiosity to ensure that I understand how I cause harm there's actually a lot of there's a lot of language at the heart of what you're saying a lot of communication and I that's that's like the way I often think of the world is that that uh, people relate to the world, you know, through particular lenses, right? And some through some people, and maybe through language. Some people maybe through imagery. Some people maybe through sound. Just sens- sensorially, literally through the senses, like what how people experience the world. And for me, it's language. It's how I, it's it's how I articulate things. And I, there was a lot of language that came came through that. I'm wondering um maybe maybe we can try to round out the conversation with you know <laughs> one more grand sort of framing that i'd love for you to to respond to um which is in that vein of of language and being articulate and being in community and being in conversation all of these different things um i just recently read um the short book we will not cancel us which is by adrian marie brown and she I believe she uses she. I can't remember. I think so too. If those are their pronouns, if those are their pronouns or not. But what they what they go through is in one of the essays, they they articulate between things like abuse and conflict and harm and contradiction and critique and misunderstanding and mistakes. And like I'm I'm curious again, just because uh we we've, we've both been through some phases of being extremely online people how those sort of frameworks, how they relate to the language that is used on social media, how accountability could, how it can work in, in those types of spaces. Because a lot of, I read another book called The Social Photo, which is about how now with digital media, we are also performing and exploring identity in real time, in communication, in conversation with other people. And that does sometimes lead to conflict. That does sometimes lead to people being disillusioned. And I think the thing that I'm, <laughs> from my perspective, the thing that I'm sen- always sensitive to is what I call the, the Glenn Beck style relapse. So if you're a white person and you, you move, and I think it's actually something that people who leave evangelicalism are really well positioned to, to do well is they moved from a very conservative language space to generally 
to a liberal one. And there's a learning curve, right? Like the, the, the way you talk, the way you communicate is different. And, but, but if you get harmed in those spaces, then some people say, screw this, I'm out. And I'm, then that becomes a reason to not. And this is definitely from a white lens. So this is something, you know, that I see like, and also from like a white male lens, like the, a lot of the heavy work for, for white men is actually, instead of claiming anger, it's about reducing it. Because the honestly, like even look at the white men and evangelicalism, the only type of emotion that's allowed right. is anger. And it's shitty anger. It's like racist anger. So like the work of a, of a white guy leaving evangelicalism is to interrogate that for a really long time, maybe for the rest of their lives, but it's not for someone else. So, so that's something that I'm always sensitive to. But when just getting back to more generally, when we talk about the language, how can we do that in a way that approaches something like accountability and how does accountability work from when you have communities, plural, that blossom on different, that are dependent on different networks and reliant on algorithms to surface things. Like there's all of these things that are sort of beyond our control. And whenever, but whenever we speak publicly about it, obviously we're going to respond emotionally too. And so it just, it's a very complex thing. And so, you know, it's not, it's something that I'm trying, that I'm trying to think deeply about right now, because I think it's worth the, the time and it's worth the time to, to come back to what you said to minimize harm to, I, there was another book I read called technology and the virtues. And it looks, instead of being a good person, it's about looking at virtue ethics um, and how to be an ethical person or how to minimize harm and do as much good as possible to use sort of like Stuart Mill utilitarian type language there. With all of those things in mind, where are you in your thought process and, and, and how you're approaching these things now as far as how language is used in these shared spaces to approach something like accountability to approach something I like, these are not simple things. And that's right. why, you know, these are, these are conversations and they're, they're happening all the time in all sorts of contexts. And I think that's super valuable. So I'm just curious where your mind is amidst all of that right now. I have a few thoughts. Like there is one thing I have a policy, I guess I have a few policies in my life in regards to my online spaces. And uh, one of them is I always engage people first, like one-on-one you know so when they cause harm i engage them one-on-one every time and you can you know and people don't know that because it's private but i engage people one-on-one depending on the online like the one-on-one response then i move that further or whatever you know like if it needs to if the harm is public i still try to go private first and then if it doesn't work in private then i move to a more public like hey i tried this in private and it's not working and you're causing harm so can we talk about this but there is this thing about and and people don't give me the same benefit neither do I expect it like I am finding like and I always tell people like anything that I share online whether it be in dms or whether it be publicly you can share it like I generally have nothing to hide and if I mess up then I messed up and it's fine but I had to make peace with one aspect of these that we haven't talked about and is I will be misrepresented 
and I will be misunderstood. And I had to make peace with those two realities. I will be misrepresented and I will be misunderstood. And I don't need everybody to understand me and I don't need everybody to represent me accurately. Often I tell people, you are misrepresenting me, please stop doing that. And I will say that and yet I know they will misrepresent me, but I will still say it. But I'm not offended by them misrepresenting me. I know that they are misrepresenting me because their system, their nervous system is activated and they are, they don't like what I have to say. It's threatening their reality. So I know it's not even personal. It's just about their nervous system. Their entire, their brain is telling them she's dangerous and therefore they shut down anything that I have to say is absolutely not, you're dangerous. So I don't take it personally and it's totally fine. But I always invite people to conversation. So I always say, hey, if you're willing to have a conversation with me about this, I'm happy to explain it to you. I'm happy to explain to you how this is harmful. And there have been times that people have responded so well. I, I am I'm remembering right now a conversation with a white man and he said something harmful and publicly. He said something very harmful publicly and I went privately to his DMs and I said, hey, do you want to talk about these? Like, do you want to know why that's harmful? Because I can tell that you're not comprehending what people are saying and I'm happy to explain it privately if you feel more safe, you know, because I understand that publicly you are right now your entire nervous system is so activated and you think that everybody's watching and hating you and it's really not like that but I'm happy to have the conversation in private and I always expect people to say no get the hell out of my space but sometimes they surprise me and he said yes can you help me understand and I was like sure so I did I explained the whole thing to him and he understood and he said what if you don't mind what am I supposed to do now like what does it look like because see people are not being malicious they generally do not know how to apologize because inside of evangelicalism we were never taught how to do it like our our entire emotional intelligence was thwarted we we are not emotionally fit people once we leave evangelicalism we have to develop emotional fitness and so he was like what am i supposed to do now and i was like apologize and do you want to know how to do that do you want to know what that looks like and he was like yeah i have no idea and i was like okay you have to name the harm that you caused like one number one is name the harm i understand now this is the harm that I caused. I didn't know that, but now I know. This is the harm that I caused. And that's very important for you to name the harm and be specific about the harm because then we understand that what you're apologizing for is actually something like you know what you're apologizing for. It's not this shallow, I'm sorry, you know, to try to get people off your back. So name the harm that you caused and say what you're going to do about it. Like apologize and say what you're going to do about this harm. Like there are all of these things that you can do, all of these different steps in having an actual effective apology you know who are the people that you're going to learn from what are you going to do to ensure that this doesn't happen again and think through those things like take some time to sit down and say what is the harm that I caused what do I understand now I'm going to name that harm and then I'm going to move on to saying these are the things and these are the steps that I'm going to take in order to ensure that this doesn't happen again and this is how I'm going to repair the harm that I caused if there is any reparation that you can do you know like I'm going to I don't know I'm like whatever it is that you can do to repair the harm I don't know. So depending on the situation, but it is, it has been so, and this has happened with several people. And the only reason I do that is because people did it with me. People have done it with me where they go, do you want me to explain to you in private how you're causing harm? I'm like, yes, could you please? Because I really genuinely am not understanding. And so to be able to humanize other people and to say, I see that there is a human behind this. And I know for a fact that most people, you can tell when people are being malicious 
And those people are just don't bother with because they are being malicious. You you can tell when they are when they when there is not good faith. But you can also tell when somebody is generally not understanding how they are causing harm. When they are gen that's why I explained so many times the same thing over and over again. So I'm like, I know for a fact that you don't even understand how you're causing harm. Because 10 years ago, I wouldn't have understood it either. Because I remember where I came from. I remember how I didn't understand a lot of understand a lot of conversations about queer phobia. I didn't. I didn't understand. There was a lot of language that I wasn't privy of. I didn't understand a lot of conversations about ableism and I had to learn and there were a lot of people that were kind enough to explain these things to me. And is there another part of the equation that means you have to educate yourself and read the books and, you know, do the Google searches? Absolutely. All of that has to happen and you have to be an adult and do the work of uh, educating yourself. But there is something about somebody seeing your humanity even when you're messing up and saying, I'm willing to explain to you the the harm that you're causing and that's the work of like of allies i don't like the word ally the word ally but let's talk about allyship with marginalized identities because this person it was causing harm to jewish people when when he caused harm he was causing harm to jewish people and he couldn't understand how see I'm not a Jewish person, but I understood how he was causing harm. I understood how he was causing, how he was saying anti-Semitic things. And so I go into his private, you know, space and I say, do you want me to explain as a Christian? Do you want me to explain how you're causing harm? Because I can take the heat of anti-Semitism because it's not trauma for me. You know, anti-Semitism is not trauma that I am holding in my body. Racism is, misogyny is, queer phobia is, but not anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is not, or transphobia specifically, is not harm that I'm, that I'm holding in my body. It's not trauma. So when I talk to him, I can talk to him as, hey, you and I are both not Jewish people. And I can explain to you because I had to understand it too. And that's the work of taking the emotional labor off of people that are in marginalized identities. I take the labor off of them and I don't center myself because I don't need anybody to see how I'm a savior. I go and do it in private and I explain it to him in private. And then he comes out in public and he apologizes. And I, I'm not expecting a shout out. I'm not expecting for him to give me credit. I'm not expecting any of it. All I am expecting is for him to understand that he caused harm to a marginalized identity and that I need him to stop doing that. And that marginalized identity is not an identity that I hold, but it's an identity that I have spent a lot of time trying to understand. And so what does it look like for you in your privilege, in the areas in which you are not holding trauma? What does it look like to just say, hey, I can have a conversation with you about this because I was you 10 years ago and I wish somebody would have explained all of this shit to me because I didn't understand <laughs> it either. And I'm yeah. happy to sit with you and say, this is how you're causing harm. And I'm happy to navigate this with you and I'm happy to be a good friend to you, even though we don't know each other. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm happy to be a good friend to you and say, this is how you're causing harm and this is how you can repair that harm. And so how can we do that in online spaces? You know, how can we, when, when white people are racist, how can people without white people, without centering themselves, how can you go and say, can I explain to you how this is racist? Because I'm happy to explain it to you. Because also people are more likely to listen to you if they can relate to your experience, you know, if they can say, oh, we have the same identities. So you'll be able to explain it to me in a different way. And they are not as defensive because their implicit biases are telling them this other wants to just put you down 
But instead, if you see an equal, then you're able to listen. And so how can we use the neuroscience of implicit biases? How can we use the neuroscience of, of how our pathways, of our neuropathways are wired to say, I know that you feel safer talking to me. So I'm going to come and get in the way and say, I'm happy to talk to you about this, not for glory, not for attention, not for, not for claps, not because I'm a savior, but instead because I can understand where you come from. I, I was you. I didn't understand this anymore, like any better than you, but now I do. And so I think that we can talk about how we can create accountable communities online specifically by by saying I am in these privileged identities and I have taken the time to educate myself. I have messed up enough to understand the experience of all these other people. And I can get in between a marginalized uh, group and a privileged person that is causing harm without centering myself and say, I'm happy to explain this to you so that you don't cause harm anymore. And even in that, you might be misrepresented. You might be misunderstood. You might be demonized. And you have to be okay with that because that's not trauma to you it's not if this man would have come back and been like i don't want you to explain anything to me i would have been like okay well your loss you know so i was happy to do it in good faith but if you don't want to you don't want to and i don't have to make you and you'll continue to cause harm and hopefully somebody else has the ability to just talk to you in the meantime i'm sure that all of jewish twitter is going to block you and that's the but it's not trauma to me like when they say something racist it's actually activating for me in different ways you know, so I think that those are some of the things that I've been thinking through. Like, how can I be a good co-conspirator, uh, a good, I like, I actually love the word traitor. So how can I be a traitor to Christians for the purpose of Christians not causing harm anymore? And I am a really good Christian traitor, like really, really good. <laughs> uh, as a Christian, I am a traitor to Christians because I won't tolerate Christians causing harm because I am a Christian. That is my lane. And as a woman in certain other privileged identities, I will be a traitor to other women too. I will be a traitor because I won't tolerate you causing harm. And so what? how can we be traitors to our own for the purpose of protecting the most marginalized and not in a saviorism way, but in a, this doesn't cause me harm in the ways that it causes harm to the marginalized so that we can be co-conspirators so that we can change and cause less harm in the world together. It's great. Thank you for sharing that. I'm glad we solved everything. This, and we're just gonna yeah we're just gonna send this <laughs> we're gonna send this link far and wide and you know we uh, <laughs> this this conversation unlocked it all my grandma says that everything is solved my grandma says everything is solved through conversation at the kitchen table because uh, that's how all of the conflict in my family we just go to the kitchen we eat a lot of food and we solve all the problems including world peace you know like we have all the solutions so this was kind of that you know we just we Great. just this was a kitchen table kind of thing Great. Yes. I'm glad. I'm <laughs> glad we did it. I'm glad. <laughs> Joe, thank you so much for spending some time with me talking about your story, talking about all the other things that we've, we've touched on, you know, small things like, like privilege and, and the complexity of theology and, <laughs> and <laughs> no online social spaces, all, all that, that little trivial stuff. <laughs> yes. Where can people find your work online? Anything else you want to mention here at the end? Uh, yeah, most of my work is online. I try to share most of the things that I share for free for the purpose of ensuring that there is accessibility 
So you can find everything online on Instagram. I do a lot of fun videos on TikTok because I have now learned to love TikTok, which is really problematic because it takes a lot of my time, but that's not here nor there. And Twitter is probably my most favorite platform. So I have a lot of fun there too. And um, I also offer some classes. They are classes puppets really with our Bible app where we talk about Christian hegemony and when we talk about Christian supremacy and what, what are the very little ways in which Christian supremacy is still embedded in every single aspect of society society every single aspect and i am not meaning that hyperbolically it's literally in every single aspect of society and how we can dismantle those ways from within us and from around us so you can find those things too we try to do it twice a year and yeah that's about it i'm writing a book so eventually you'll be able to hear about my book and i'm really excited about that so yeah those are the ways where you can find me joe thank you so much for joining me today thank you blake thank you so much 